Now we have come to a new section in the epistle to the Ephesians, the conduct of the church. The first three chapters, we saw the calling of the church, the vocation, the vocalization of the church. Now we have here the vocation of the believer, the heavenly calling, and now the earthly walk of the believer. And not the worldly walk, but the earthly walk. They're walking here on this earth. And the church is seated yonder in the heavenlies in Christ. He is the head of the body. And he's seated at God's right hand. But the church is to walk down here in this world, as we shall see. Now the church here is called a new man. The church now has been made new, and it's a new man to walk. And now we come to the practical side of this. Now, in this last section, we shall consider the conduct, the confession, and the conflict of the church. The church here is a new man, and the church will be a bride. And the church is a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, we've been on the mountain peak of transfiguration in the first section. And probably the highest spiritual point in the New Testament is in these last three chapters. And that's the reason we've spent so much time on the mount. But in this last division, now we descend to the plane of living, right down where the rubber meets the road. And now we're going to get down to the nitty-gritty where we confront a demon-possessed world and a skeptical mob? Are we able to translate the truths of the mountaintop into shoe leather? Are we able to stand and walk through the world? Our Lord said that we are in the world, but not of the world. Now, it's been stated that Ephesians occupies the same position theologically as Joshua does in the Old Testament. And now we come to the position where this truth is manifest. Joshua, you remember, entered the land of promise. He led the children of Israel over the Jordan. That speaks of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Brought them into the promised land. That's where you and I live today, or at least where we should be living today, in resurrection territory. And Joshua brought them into the land that God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and also to Moses. And it was his by right of promise. But he had to appropriate it by taking possession. And possession is the great word in Joshua. And now we've come to that word here. Before, in the first three chapters, it's position, position, position. We've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. God's made them over to us. But are we walking down here in possession of them? And the children of Israel promised the promised land. But to them it was a never-never land because they had up to this point never entered it. Now they've entered it. And they're to enter it for their enjoyment and blessing, blessing to others. Although enemies and other obstacles stood in the way, Joshua had to overcome and occupy. And he was told... Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that's yours. Now, all of it's yours, but you're not going to enjoy only that which you lay hold of. The believer is privileged today. 
now to move in and occupy the all-spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, the unsearchable riches in Christ. But they must be searched out with the spiritual Geiger counter, which is the Word of God. Now, we have seen glorious declarations. Henceforth, there will be commands for those who have been called to such an exalted place, a way of life is demanded which is commensurate with the calling. So many people today dwell on the first part of Ephesians. They become rather super-duper saints, very spiritual. I remember when I first came to Southern California, there was a family in the church. That is, they attended. They were not members. And in fact, rather active and very lovely people. And I asked them one day, the man and his wife, why they didn't join. And they looked up toward the ceiling and said, we're members of the invisible church, and fluttered their eyelids. Well, I looked up toward the ceiling. I didn't see that invisible church. And, of course, the reason I didn't see it is invisible. Now, I found out that a lot of these folk who are members of the invisible church, they're really invisible. They're invisible on Sunday night, and they're invisible on Wednesday night. In fact, they're invisible when you need somebody, by the way. But the invisible church is to make itself visible down here in the local assembly, and the individuals down here are to walk that way. Now we've come to the practical side, the earthly conduct of the church, the vocation. Now in this chapter, the church is a new man. And we have in the first six verses the exhibition of the new man. And then verses 7 through 16, the inhibition of the new man. And then verses 17 to 32, the prohibition of the new man. Now, the new man is to exhibit himself down here. The members of the invisible church are to make themselves visible. They are to exhibit themselves. They are to be extroverts, if you please and get the Word of God out something. Now, we want to say that what follows here is restricted to those that are in Christ. The ones we're talking to now, at least that Paul's talking to in this epistle, and that the Spirit of God is talking, are saved people. Now, if you're listening to this today and you're not a Christian, and there are quite a few folk that are not Christians, they've written to us, they say they listen. What God is saying here, he's not asking you to do until you become a child of his through faith in Christ, become a member of his body. Now, this is for those in whom we have redemption and they've heard the word of truth. Now, a dead man cannot be urged to walk, no matter how much insistence is made or how important it may be. Now, Paul is going to start off by saying, Therefore, I beg you, the prisoner of the Lord, that ye walk worthy of the calling with which ye are called. Now, here is the thought. He said that we were dead in trespasses and sins. That's the condition of the laws. You just don't go out to the cemetery. You don't send the top sergeant out there for him to say, attention, you know, give a command, and then forward, march. I want you to understand something very clearly. If you say that, there won't be any marching. Oh, there won't be any marching, friends. 
Nobody's going to move. They've got to have life first. So he's not talking here to unsaved people. And I must say, oh, we're delighted to have you if you're not a Christian. But I want you to stay on the sidelines and listen, because this will tell you what God would ask of you if you're going to become a believer. And then when you look around you, you'll know whether the saints that you know are living as God wants them to live. This, by the way, is a very nice program to have in your hand to see whether the saints are. Now we have here that these instructions are given to the new man, not to the man dead in trespasses and sin. The world is saying today, and the religions are saying, do something and you'll be somebody. God says, be somebody, and then you can do something. Now we have it. Verse 1, Therefore, I exhort you, I beg you, I, the prisoner of the Lord, that you walk worthily of the calling with which you were called. Now, therefore, is a connective. It is a transitional word, and it's in view of all that God has done for the believer that's been stated in these last three chapters. Now, in view of that, therefore, and Paul is a prisoner because of his position in Christ. The man seated in the heavens is also seated in prison, and he's there because he was a witness to the Gentiles And he's telling them that, now, I'm a prisoner. I beseech you, a prisoner in the Lord. And beggar beseeches the same word that you have in Romans 12, 1. This is not the command of Sinai with fire and thunder. It's the gentle wooing of love. I beseech you that you walk worthy of the high calling. I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, here, it's to walk worthily of the calling. Now, it's a call to walk on a plane that's commensurate with your position that's in Christ. Paul said to the Philippians in 127, only let your conversation, that is, your manner of life, your lifestyle, be as it becometh, the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, So ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. He says in Colossians, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And in 1 Thessalonians 2.10, dear witnesses in God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. Now he says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the gospel. Now, friends, people may not be telling you, but they're smelling you today. They are sniffing you to see whether you're genuine or not, whether you're a real child of God through faith in Christ. And the only way they can tell is by your walk. How do you walk through the world? And by the way, it's not so much how you walk as where you walk. You remember John says, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, We have fellowship with him. That's to walk in the light of the Word of God. How much time do you really spend in the Word of God? Don't you know that your children know how much time you spend in the Bible? Don't you know your neighbors know? Don't you know that the people in the church know how much time? And then we talk about fellowship with God. We have to walk in the light. And what about the man outside? I heard this story years ago. It was over in Memphis, Tennessee. 
that there was a man, one of these men, who gives out tracts, and it's fine to give out tracts. I think it's a ministry that requires a lot of prayer, and it ought to be done with a great deal of intelligence. And this man was handing out tracts, and he handed one to a black man. The black man said to him, what is this? The man says, it's a tract. <laughs> the black man handed it back to him. He says, I can't read. <laughs> he said, you say it's a tract? Well, he says, I can't read it, but I can watch your tracks, and I'll see what kind of tracks you make. May I say to you, that was the greatest sermon that that Christian ever had preached to him. Somebody's watching his tracks, not reading the tracks he's giving out. That's the thing that's important. Now, Paul says, on the basis of the fact I'm a prisoner, I'm in prison for you Gentiles, I beseech you now, not a command, but I beseech you. Now he says here that with all lowliness, now he's going to tell us how to walk. We're to walk with all lowliness. And he mentions here about seven different things. I'm going to take them up. With all lowliness. Now that means a mind brought low. You know, Paul practiced what he preached. It's the opposite of pride. And you'll find that in the life of the Apostle Paul, he always exhibited a lowly mind. Oh, today, if our seminaries would get off of this binge of trying to make intellectual preachers and teach some of them to walk in lowliness of mind. And so many of them need to walk in lowliness of mind. I remember hearing the story years ago of the young preacher he was a brilliant young fellow in Scotland in the seminary. And he's so brilliant that when a very fashionable church in Edinburgh wanted a supply, why the seminary sent this fine young man. Well, I tell you, he was filled with pride because of the fact he was called to minister in this great church. And so he went there. Now, he'd never had any experience. He was brilliant sitting in class are in his study. But when he got up before that group of people, there was something he'd never known about before in that stage fright. And he forgot everything he ever knew. He memorized his sermon, but he forgot it. He forgot everything. And he just stumbled through. And a dear little Scotch lady there watched him as he came down. And he just really made a failure. And she went up to him and she said, Young man, said, I was watching you this morning. And she said, I'd like to say to you, if you had gone up in that pulpit like you came down out of that pulpit, then you would have come down out of that pulpit like you went up in that pulpit. He went up with pride. He came down, I tell you, with lowliness and meekness. This man here certainly came down. Now, it's the opposite of pride. That's what it is. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. Paul said to the Philippians in 2.3, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. I think this is the flagship of all Christian virtues. It characterized our Lord. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I am meek and lowly in heart. Oh, the number of Christians today that are actually, they have a pride of race. They have a pride of place. They have a pride of face. And they actually have a pride of grace. They're proud. They're saved by grace even. 
we need to walk in lowliness of mind. And there's something else to be said about that business of lowliness. All this business today of exalting ourselves, that's what Satan did, that awful thing. It's stories told about a group of people that went in to see Beethoven's home in Germany. And the guide was taking them through, and they came to the piano where he composed his music. And then after he finished his lecture, he said, if any of you'd like to come up and sit at the piano for a moment and just maybe hit a key or two. And so there was a mighty rush. Everyone tried to get up at first, and everyone trying to except a gray-haired gentleman with long, flowing gray hair. And the guide finally, after they'd all been there, said to him, wouldn't you like to come up and sit down and try playing? Oh, he said, no. He said, I don't feel worthy. That man was Paderewski, by the way. Probably the only man there who was worthy to play the piano. A Beethoven is the one man that wouldn't play it. Oh, how many saints today rush in? and do things, even in the church, have no gift for doing, but they do it. Nevertheless, we say we have difficulty finding people to do things. There's another trouble, too. That's the extreme of folk doing things they ought not to be doing. We need to walk in lowliness of mind. Now, meekness means mildness, but it doesn't mean weakness. It doesn't mean that you're Mr. Milktoast. The two men that are noted for being meek, in the Old Testament was Moses, and the New Testament was the Lord Jesus. When you see Moses come down from the mount, break the Ten Commandments, and I tell you, when you see what he said to his brother Aaron and to the children of Israel, you call that meekness? God does. And was the Lord Jesus meek when he went in, drove the money changers out of the temple? He certainly was. Well, the world doesn't call that meekness. What is meekness? Meekness is willing to stand and do the will of God regardless of the cost. Bowing yourself to the will of God. That's meekness. And long-suffering means a long temper. This is a fruit of the Spirit. When we were in 1 Corinthians, I talked about that. Long-suffering means burning slowly over a long period of time. It means we shouldn't have a short fuse. And some of us, I'm afraid, do. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. And then the fourth thing here, for bearing one another in love. It means to hold oneself back in the spirit of love, for bearing one another, forgiving one another. And then the fifth that's mentioned here, giving diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now, the Lord Jesus prayed that we might be one. And the Spirit of God today has baptized us into one body. Now, we're to maintain that. We're to maintain that unity. We're not to make it. God never said for us to join the ecumenical movement, because to begin with, you can't make a unity that only the Holy Spirit can make. We're to keep it. And that's the reason that you and I should be with all believers. That is, you and I should feel that we're all one body. Now, we have mentioned here seven unities that we are to keep. Will you notice them? He says, ye are one body, and there is one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Now, one body is the body of believers. It began on the day of Pentecost to the parousia, to the rapture. One spirit is the Holy Spirit that baptizes us into the body. One hope of your calling 
That one hope is the blessed hope. We have no other hope. One Lord refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, his lordship over believers. The fifth is one faith. That refers to the body of truth called the apostles' doctrine in Acts 2.42. And the sixth, one baptism, refers to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, real baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Ritual baptism is by water. Then seven, one God and Father of all. That refers to God's fatherhood of believers. Since there's only one Father, He's not the Father of unbelievers. The unity of believers produces a sharp distinction between believers and non-believers. He's the Father of all who are His by regeneration. He's over all, through all, and in all. means that God is both imminent and he's transcendent. This is a marvelous section of the Word of God, as you can see. Now, friends, you can get so involved in that. We have been talking about the church, which is the body of Christ, and that the head is in heaven. We're joined to him. The church is a body. The church is a new man. The church is a mystery. All of this heading up in the person of Christ, yonder at God's right hand. As someone has said, you can be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good at all. And a great many people get carried away with that to the extent they don't realize that we're to walk down here in a very bad world, very mean world. And that is where the rubber meets the road. We're now getting down to the nitty-gritty. Paul said, how we're to walk. Now, walking is down here, and that's what the body is to do. We saw first the exhibition of the body, and he spoke to the individual, how the individual is to walk in lowliness, meekness. And then he widened it out to the church. There is one body, one spirit. And then he consummated it with a great, tremendous crescendo. And he said, One God and Father of all who's above all, through all, and in you all. Now, when he says he's above all, we're speaking there, actually, about the transcendence of God. God is transcendent. He's above his creation. He is not dependent upon it. The Lord doesn't depend on oxygen, you know, to get by. He doesn't have to bring up some supplies from the rear. He doesn't do Saturday shopping in order to have food for the weekend. He's not dependent upon his creation. He is transcendent. He is not only above all, but he's through all. And that means this universe you and I live in, he's in it. And he's in you all, and he's motivating it and moving it according to his plan and purpose. And that, you know, adds meaning to life today. It makes it sort of worthwhile. It gets a little humdrum every now and then, doesn't it? There is a monotony. Now, I love to make these tapes. But you know, after I've been in this study here every day for about ten days, making two and three tapes at a time, I'll let you in on something, and I hope you won't tell anybody about it. And that is, it does get monotonous, you know. Get weary and that sort of thing. But, oh, there comes in that great thought. All of this is in the plan and purpose of God. And then I feel like singing the 
doxology or the hallelujah chorus. And when I do, everybody moves out of earshot. But I sure hope the Lord listens because he said it's to come from the heart, making melody in your heart. And evidently, that's where I make it because when it comes out the mouth, there's no melody there. I always think of the experience we had because this, to me, is like a great symphony orchestra that's presented to us here. And you and I are to walk in step with God. We are to walk with the music of heaven today. And it's like a great symphony orchestra. I like to illustrate like this. When I first went to Nashville as pastor, some friends there invited me to go with them to hear a symphony orchestra. They bought a ticket for me, they said, and they wanted me to go. Well, now they thought they were doing me a favor. But, you know, there are other things that I'd rather do than go and listen to a symphony orchestra. And I recognize that I'm a real peasant when it comes to music. I don't understand it at all. But, you know, I got a great message there that day. I went with them, and I sat down. We got there a little early, and there was quite a stir in the auditorium as people were coming in. Then lights went on on the platform or the stage, I guess I should say, and I noticed all those instruments that were out there. And then it looked to me like over a 100 men came out from all sides, all the different wings. And they came, each one, to his own instrument. I guess they did. didn't sound like it. I was told that was tuning up. And each one played his own little tune. And I give you my word, you have never heard anything that was medley, nothing that was melody there. In fact, it sounded to me like this rock music, even that orchestra way back yonder. And it was terrible. And very frankly, why... They quit after a few moments, which we were very thankful, and then they disappeared again in the wings. And then when the time came, the floodlights came on, footlights, I think they call it. They came on, and then these men came out again. But this time they were different. Before, they were in their shirt sleeves. This time they were in full dress. I tell you, they had a bow tie, beautiful white shirts on. Oh, they were very nice. And each one came to his instrument, but no man dared play it. And then the spotlight went on one of the wings to our right. And there stepped out the director. And he bowed, and there was thunderous applause. And he bowed several times. Then he came over to the podium, and he picked up a little thin stick. And he turned around, bowed again, bowed it. Then he turned his back to the audience there, and he lifted that little baton. And when he did, you could have heard a pin drop in that auditorium. And then he came down with that little stick, and he sure got a lot of music out of that little stick. You have never heard anything that was this thrilling. It made goose pimples on you. My hair stood on end. It really was thrilling to hear that first tremendous number. And as I sat there... Because after a while, it got a little boring. I began to think about that. And you know, that's the picture of this universe. You and I are living today in a world where every person is playing his own little tune. This group is carrying his little placard, and he's protesting against something. He's against everybody else. And everybody seems to be out of tune, out of harmony with everybody else. And it doesn't look very good in the world today. And you wonder what the outcome's going to be. Well, 
It's very pessimistic as you look toward and listen to some, and you look toward the situation today. I tell you, I can understand why Simon Peter began to sink in that ocean. When you see the waves around you today, you think this is it. But friends, one of these days, there's going to step out from the wings of this universe, from God's right hand, the director. (laughs) He's called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And when he does, he'll lift the baton, he's going to lift the scepter and nail-pierced hands. And when he does, everything is going to be in tune. He's imminent and he's transcendent. What a tremendous thing. He's above all, through all, and in you all. So don't give up. The director's coming and get us all in tune. Now, we come to the section where we have the inhibition of the new man. The inhibition of the new man. The church now is to walk as a new man in the world. Now, before there was to be the exhibition. The church is to be an extrovert, to witness, to manifest in the life. Now, the church also has inhibitions, and inhibitions are important. The little child doesn't have inhibition, and the church is not to be like a little baby all the time and manifest itself as a baby. It is to grow up and develop some inhibitions. You know, there are just certain things you don't say. At times, you know. But a little child would say them. And I told a story, I think, about going and visiting with some people, and all they were church members, and they put on quite a performance. How pious they were and religious they were. And then we sat down at the table, and they called on me for the blessing. And I returned thanks, and a little fellow was sitting there in a high chair. I think he's about maybe three years old. The little fellow, he looked around, you know, and he turned to his mom. He says, what did he do? <laughs> he had no inhibition. They just didn't return thanks there very often. little fellow didn't know. Now, the church, though, is to have inhibitions because it's to mature and to grow up. Now, will you notice the process that he gives? But to each of us was given the grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now, if you'll notice here that he's given to believers gifts. And this is a section, again, on gifts. We have it in Romans, the 12th chapter. We have it here in this fourth chapter of Ephesians. And then we've already seen it in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. That actually is the larger section on gifts. Now he's saying here that believers are to give diligence to maintain the unity of the Spirit, you see. And how are we to do that? And that does not mean that each is to be a carbon copy of the other. It's not me too proposition. Each believer is given a gift so that he may function in the body of believers in a particular way. Now, let me come back and say something that we said in 1 Corinthians 12. Gifts are given to individuals that they might exercise that gift in the body of believers because they are a member of the body. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, he says that to everyone there is this 
manifestation of the Spirit, and it's given to profit with all, which means simply this. A gift is the Spirit doing something through the believer. And he's doing it not for the private devotions of the individual, but he's doing it in the body of believers to build up the body, that is, for the profit of the body. Now, no gift is given to an individual to develop you spiritually. It's given to you to function in the body of believers that you might benefit and bless the church. And I hear someone say today, and I've had many letters like this, Oh, Dr. McGee, we do not speak in tongues in the church. We do it for our private devotions. I can say to you categorically from the Word of God, you're dead wrong. A gift was given to profit the church, and you have no right to selfishly use it for your own profit. In fact, the matter is that it's not a gift if it's being used that way. A gift is that you are a member of the body, and every member of my body is to function for a very definite reason. Imagine this morning when I came down to the study. Imagine my eyes saying, well, we are sleepy today. We'll stay home. You go on down. And they'd say, we want to have our devotions. Well, I want to say to you, friend, I couldn't get along down here without my eyes. I need them in making this tape. And my legs brought me down here. My eyes are looking at the page of Scripture. And my tongue is cooperating a little, I hope. And I hope my brain is. So that, you see, it's when... You are exercising a gift. You're benefiting the church. Now, that is the thing that is quite obvious here. Each believer is given a gift so that he may function in the body of believers in a particular way. And when he does, the body functions. And that's where you get the unity of the Spirit. Together with this gift is given, you see, the grace to exercise it in the power and fullness of the Spirit of God. Now, each believer functioning in his peculiar sphere, he produces a harmony, as does each member of the human body. Now, when one member of my body suffers, Paul says all of it suffers. And therefore, when you will not function, exercise your gift in the body, you just throw us all out of tune. Then he says in verse 8, "...wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high..." He led captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto man. Now, he did two things. First, he led captivity captive. Now, you'll notice, first of all, that this is a quotation from Psalm 68:18, And let me read that. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for man, yea, for the rebellious also, but the Lord God might dwell in him. Now, somebody says, say, there seems to be a discrepancy here in the quotation. It says back in Psalms, he received. Now, here it says he gave. And by the way, may I say that any author has a right to change his own writings, but nobody else does. A man quoted me in an article, but he misquoted me. And believe me, the publisher had to back up and apologize for misquoting. Now, I have a right to misquote my own writing if I want to, if it serves a purpose. Now, the Holy Spirit changes this, but he does it for a purpose. Why? Back in the book of Psalms, the Lord Jesus had the gifts just ready. 
back yonder, as he's at God's right hand. And now that he's been here, and he now has gone back in the Spirit of God, is the one that today is distributing the gifts that he gave them, did he not? I think this is very accurate. Now, this, of course, is a reference, I think, to the ascension of Christ. At that time when he ascended, he did two things. He led captivity captive. And I believe that means that those of the Old Testament who were redeemed but were in paradise, and Christ took them with him out of paradise, yonder into the very presence of God, because we're told today when you die, you don't go to paradise, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now, we're told he did something else. He gave gifts unto man. Now, that means that he conferred gifts upon living believers in the church that they might witness to the world. Now, you see, at his ascension, he did two things. He took these Old Testament saints in the presence of God. Then he gave gifts. Now, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came, baptized them into the body of believers, but he put them in in a certain place to function as a member of the body. And he's been doing that ever since. Now, verses 9 and 10. Now that he ascended, what is it unless that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? He that descended, he it is also who ascended high above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, I believe that the logical explanation here is since Christ has ascended, he must have descended at some previous time. And some see in this only the incarnation. For instance, the early church fathers, though, they saw in it the work of Christ in bringing the Old Testament saints out of paradise up to the throne of God. Now, it's not necessary to assume that he entered into some form of suffering after death. For instance, when he descended into hell, we're told. What does that mean? Well, he descended into the place where the dead were. And his incarnation and death were his humiliation and descent. And they were adequate to bring the redeemed of the Old Testament into the presence of God. I think that's what we have here in this passage. And I recognize their other interpretations. Now, we have in verses 11 and 13, "...and he himself gave some." Now, you'll notice that I'm now reading my own translation. I trust it might be helpful. And he himself gave some apostles and some prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Now, he didn't give them to become that. These are not gifts that he's giving to these men, although he had done that. But he's saying that he took these men who have certain gifts and he gives them to the church. For what purpose? In order to the perfecting or the equipping of the saints under the work of ministering and building up of the body of Christ till we all attain under the unity of the faith and of the fullness of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a full-grown man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, this may sound selfish. I trust it's not. 
What's the purpose of the church in the world? It's to complete itself, might grow up. Now, he himself here is very emphatic. And he himself, the Lord Jesus is the one who gave the gifts. And he's the one that has given them. He's the one that has the authority. Now, he gave some that were given the gift of an apostle that they are given now to the church. For what purpose? That the apostle might do, as Paul says, Paul an apostle, not of man, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ. God the Father raised him from the dead. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this office, by virtue of its very nature, has long since disappeared from the church. Now, prophets here, I think, are used as they are elsewhere in the epistle. They're New Testament prophets. And I think it means preachers. These men were given, as were the apostles, particular insight into the doctrines of the faith. And they were under the immediate influence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which distinguishes them, I think, from teachers today, although they were preachers in their day. Now, the Lord Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, he did two things. That he took the Old Testament saints out of paradise, the land where he is. And then he gave gifts to the church down here. The members of the church all are given a gift. And then he took some of these gifted men that he'd given gifts to, and he gave them to certain churches. Or he's given to the whole church these gifted men. And there are the apostles, and there are the prophets, and there's no one around today with the office of apostle. But actually, the apostles belong to us today and the prophets. Now, they themselves, they've passed off the scene long ago, but they're still members of his church. And it does not exist only on earth. Part of it's up yonder in heaven with him. And they are part of the host, though they passed the flood and are in the presence of God. They're still members of the church. And we have apostles and prophets. Well, may I say to you, that we do. And right now, aren't we studying the epistle to the Ephesians? Who wrote that, by the way? Apostle Paul? Well, where is he? He's up yonder with Christ. You remember he said, absent from the body, present with Christ. And he says, it's far better to go and be with the Lord. Well, he's taken the far better route now. And he's up yonder, but he's a member of the church. And we're studying his epistle today. So he's given to the church, the apostles and prophets and the evangelists were the traveling missionaries and pastors and teachers. And the one that is the office of a teacher is one interests me naturally a great deal. Because if I don't have that gift, I don't have any, that's for sure. And you will find that that gift is mentioned in Romans 12, and then again in 1 Corinthians 12, 28 and 29, and then again in 1 Timothy 3, 2. Now, God has given these men to the church that the church might be brought to full maturation where there would be inhibition, that the church wouldn't make a nut of itself, that the church would not appear ignorant before the world. And the teachers and all of these are to prepare the church that they might do the work. Do you notice what he says here? The work of ministering and building up the body of Christ. Now, we call the pastor of a church a minister, but 
Now, if you're a Christian today, you're as much a minister as he is. You don't have to be ordained to be a minister. He has a certain gift. And this is something else I'd like to say. I do not believe that any man that is in the church today has all the gifts. Dr. Chaffer used to say he never met a man he thought he had both gifts. He said at one time that he led his own singing and did the preaching when he started out as an evangelist. And a dear lady came to him one night and said, Dr. Chaffer, you're doing too much. said, you ought not to lead the singing and do the preaching both. And she said, why don't you get somebody to do the preaching? Well, may I say to you, he was a musician, but I thought he was a great teacher also. So that the interesting thing is that we have today the viewpoint that the pastor has several gifts and that one of them is the minister. Well, he is to teach the Word of God so that his members are those that are in under him, that they might do the work of the ministry. They might be the one to go out and witness. And today... We have the church going in reverse, and a great many people think it's the business of the pastor or the pastoral staff to do all the visitation. I think it's the business of the members. That's their responsibility and the thing that they should do. Here is a little article that I took out years ago of a bulletin of a church back east, and it reads like this. For centuries, the principal responsibility for evangelism has been borne by the clergy. The laity were neither called to evangelistic activity nor believed it to be their responsibility. One of the most significant developments in the church, possibly the single most important development in recent centuries, is the revival of lay activity and the growing recognition that the layman is called to a ministry no less important than that of the minister. Elton True Blood has said, "...the Reformation has opened up the Bible to the common man. A new Reformation will open up the ministry to the common man." Now, may I say that I think that's a very fine article and that we are seeing laymen becoming more involved and so many young people, young Christians, getting involved in doing the witnessing. Now, they need teaching and they need teachers. I think that's the only reason in the world they'll listen to me is because they feel like I can teach them. By the way, there are folk that get a great deal excited when they hear somebody using my material. I had a call some time ago from a lady back in Ohio, and there's apparently a preacher back there that does a pretty good job of imitating me, and the Lord help Ohio for having a man like that. But nevertheless, she said he's teaching the book of Ruth and says he not only follows your book and follows your teaching, he uses your illustration. And she says, I think it's terrible that you ought to stop him. Oh, I said, is he doing a good job? And she said, yes, he is. He's doing a fine job. Well, I said, praise the Lord. I always felt like somebody would come along and do it much better, and I did it. And she says, yes, but he ought not to do that. I said, I don't see why he shouldn't. My business is to try to prepare the others to do the work of the ministry. And this man apparently is using material, and he's free to use it. Now, I know a preacher that I saw an article that he wrote, and he said, you can't use this without permission. Who in the world does he think he is? Why, we're to build up the church. 
church, and that material ought to be free for anybody to use. And every now and then I get letters from ministers, one the other day, and he said, I want to preach this sermon of yours. Is it all right? Well, I said, one thing I ask of you, do it better than I did, brother. That's the important thing. But use the material, of course, because, my friend, we're to build up the body of Christ today. And it rejoices me that when I get letters and people say, I took your material or your book and I used it out yonder, I used the tape. I thank God for that, my friend. We're to get the Word of God out today. And that's the important thing, that these men have been given to the church for the building up of the church. And that's one reason that I went out of the pastorate into the wider ministry of radio. I found out that by radio I could build up more people. And very candidly, and I'm talking to you very frankly, but don't expect your pastor to do it all. He's there to train you that you might do the work of the ministry and that the church might be built up to full maturation, that we might not act like a bunch of nuts today, that we might give a good, clear-cut, intelligent witness in the world. And may I add this? I'm very frank, as you know. I think that the greatest sin in the local church today is the ignorance of the man sitting in the pew doesn't know the Word of God. And that's tragic. I'd hate to get into an airplane that the pilot didn't know any more about flying than the average church member knows about Christianity or the Word of God. I'll be honest with you, I don't think that the plane would make it, my friend. I think it would crash maybe before it even got ten feet in the air. Now, that is the condition of the church today. That's another reason. We believe that getting the Word of God out today is pretty important. Will you forgive us for going into detail here like this? Now, let me move along. In verse 14, he says, "...in order that we be no longer children." <laughs> you know, we are to have inhibition. We're not to run around like a bunch of babies crying. You remember, that's what Paul said to the Corinthians. He says, "...you're carnal, you're babes in Christ." And your disgrace, in order that we be no longer children tossed up and down and driven about with every wind of teaching by the slight of man, and that's the shooting of dice of man, in craft and cunning, tending to the system of error, scheming of deceit, but being followers of truth and love, may grow up into him as to all things who is the head, Christ from whom all the body, being fitly framed together and put together through every joint of the supply, according to energy of the measure of each individual part, that is, according to the working in the measure of every part, the whole body, making the increase of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, the purpose of Christ and given to the church men with different gifts is to develop believers from babyhood to full maturation. These men are to be, therefore, pediatricians. Now, I use the expression sometimes, I am not an obstetrician. Primarily, I'm a pediatrician. The obstetrician, he brings the baby into the world. Now, I know he has to get up at 1 o'clock in the morning to do all this, and that it's pretty bad, and he spends the night. But from then on, he's through with the little... <coughs> angel, by the way, and he turns him over to the pediatrician. 
And that's the fellow that has the problem of putting on the dieties and giving the bottle and burping him. And I've been a pediatrician in my ministry, and the obstetrician is sort of second. But that's been my business. And I feel that that's what many of us are called to do. Now, there is a mixing of metaphors here. Will you notice? And he brings out vividly the danger of a believer continuing as a babe. Children are never put in command of a ship at sea. It's like the pilot, you know, of a plane. You wouldn't put a baby up there running it. You wouldn't put my little grandson up there. I hope he's a smart boy, but he's not that smart. If they were, they'd be tossed up and down in a ship, driven here and there without direction over the vast expanse of sea, and in a plane that had crashed. They'd become discouraged and seasick as they lose their way. Now, this is a frightful picture of the possible fate of a child of God. Now, the figure of speech changes again. These babes are seen in a gambling den where the sharpest take them in with a system of error. And I wouldn't think of sending my grandson up here to Las Vegas to play the slot machine. In fact, when he gets a hundred years old, I won't send him there, and I'll tell you that. In contrast, though, the believer is to follow the truth in love. That is to love it, live it, and speak it. Christ is truth, and the believer must sail his little bark of life with Christ as his compass and the magnetic pole toward Christ. All things must point. The body receives not only orders from the head, but spiritual nourishment. And this produces a harmony where each member's functioning in his place as he received spiritual supplies from the head. The body has an inward dynamic whereby it renews itself. Likewise, the spiritual body is to renew itself in love. Now we come to the prohibition of the new man. There is the negative side of the believer's life, and I think this is important to see today. There is not enough emphasis right now on this. We talk about all of this new morality, which is nothing in the world but just old sin. And there's a liberty in Christ, but it's not license to sin by any means. And there is the negative side. So we're going to see that there are some prohibitions. And I'll be very frank again, and let me say this. I can't find anywhere here where it says a woman is not to use makeup. I don't know. I'm not hipped on that, but I do want to say that I've been with a group for years that judged a great many women by the amount of makeup that they use. And I used to have a great deal of fun when teaching and kidding these young people. And many of these girls think they were spiritual, come in with disheveled hair and no makeup on. They look like they're a walking zombie. And I think some of them were just about that, by the way. And I used to tell them when they'd ask the question, should a girl use makeup? And I'd say, well, I'll tell you one thing. Some of you'd look better with it. And I think a Christian ought to look the best he can, but he ought not to be painted up like a barber pole. There are prohibitions, but that just doesn't happen to be one of them. And we need to recognize that there is the power of negative thinking. We've had too much of the power of positive thinking. We need a little of the power of negative thinking. I have a sermon on that, by the way. And have you ever stopped to think? The Garden of Eden, that was the only kind of thinking there was in the Garden of Eden, and it was a garden, remember? 
Thou shalt not eat of that tree. <laughs> That's negative, and it's the only thing that was there. And then will you come to the Ten Commandments. They're very negative, but very good. And now there's some negative thinking. Here's prohibition of the new man. Verse 17, This then I say and testify, that is, I solemnly declare in the Lord, that ye walk no longer as also the Gentiles walk, in the vanity, the emptiness of illusion of your mind, having been darkened in the understanding, that is, in your moral perception. Don't go for the new morality. Being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance which is in them, through the hardness of their hearts, who as being past feeling, cease from feeling pain, have given themselves over to uncleanness, lasciviousness, to a working of all uncleanness and greediness and covetousness. Now, Paul returns at this juncture to the practical aspect of the believer's walk. Now, will you notice? Listen to him. He had introduced it in those first three verses, but he was detoured by the instruction of the subject of the unity of the church. Now, he gives a picture of the lives of Gentiles and the lives of the Ephesians before conversion. He told about their position. You remember back in chapter 2, you were way off, strangers, without hope and without God. But they were also living in sin. This is their picture. Now, this is a graphic picture of the lost man today. That is what he does. And there are four aspects of the walk of the Gentiles that illustrate the absolute futility and insane purpose of the life of the lost man. That to not walk as Gentiles in the vanity of their mind. Now, notice that. The vanity of their mind means the empty illusion of the life that thinks their satisfaction in sin. Oh, how many people? How many? And I feel so sorry for many of these young people that have taken on the new morality. One girl said to me, two abortions, murdered two babies not marry. What a life. That's not life, my friend. That's awful. That's terrible. And the Gentiles walk that way. The lost people, they walk in the vanity of their mind, an empty illusion of life, that it's great to drink cocktail. And a woman said to me, who's become an alcoholic, she started listening to the program. She's right now fighting a battle to be delivered from alcohol, and she's accepted Christ the best she can, but she can't leave the bottle alone. May I say to you, she says, oh, how tragic it was to think it was so smart and sophisticated to drink cocktails. How tragic. And the second thing, having been darkened in the understanding, why the lost man has lost his perception of moral values. And that's exactly what the new morality is. No perception of it. And then the third, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that's in them. Now, what a picture of mankind today. He thinks he's living. <laughs> and one man told me, he said he spent $75 one night, he and his wife in a nightclub. What to do? Have a good time. That's expensive good time. And let me tell you, fun time. And you have to pay like that and go through all of that to have a good time? You're alienated from the life of God and certainly dead in trespasses and sin. 
Now, here's the fourth. Who, as being past feeling, have given themselves over to uncleanness, to a working of all uncleanness in covetousness. Now, this continuance and this state of moral ineptitude, it brings them down to the level where they have no feeling of wrongdoing. And there are a lot of folk like that today. They're apathetic. The resultant condition is to plunge further into immorality and lasciviousness. And this vicious cycle will finally lead them to a desire to even deeper sin. If you paint the town red tonight, you've got to have a bigger bucket and a bigger brush for tomorrow night. The meaning is to covet the very depths of immorality. Now, men in sin are never satisfied with sin. They become abandoned to sin. Now, this is what it means in Romans. God gave them up. You can reach the place, my friend, where you are an abandoned sinner. Now, verses 20 and 21. But ye did not thus learn Christ, if indeed him ye did hear, and in him were taught, even as in Jesus there is truth. And my friend, if you're not listening to Jesus, then he must not be your Savior. He's the shepherd. His sheep, he says, hears his voice. You haven't heard his voice. You just couldn't be a sheep, you see. Now, this is the picture of the Gentiles that we've seen. Now, here is the thing. What are they to do? They're to listen to Christ. They're to hear him. And other sheep are not to hear him. When an unsaved man writes me and says to me, I disagree with you. Fine, brother. I hope you don't agree with me. That's the entire picture, by the way. And this is the thing that we need to recognize, that the saved person looks to the Lord Jesus as his shepherd, lets him lead him, listens to him. And he is an example. Not that we can imitate him, because we can't. But he certainly has been the one that has been the pioneer that went through the doorway of death for us. And he's the one that when he walked down here, he is an example to look to. No reason for any believer being in the dark today. Now, Paul says at verse 22 through 24, that ye put off as regards your former manner of life, the old man, and that you're to put on, he says here, the new man. Now, it's actually like a garment. You put off the old, put on the new. And don't we call certain garments a habit? There's a riding habit, a walking habit. There is one for hiking, hunting habit, and playing golf, a habit for that, so that we have different habits. Now, the child of God is to put on as a garment the new man. Actually, what this means here, that it cannot be done by self-effort. After all, the babe in Christ can't dress himself. I found out that a child has to get very far along before he's able to dress himself. And when he starts out, he doesn't do very well. We never reach the place where we can do that. Now, the old man, we're told over in Romans, has been crucified in the death of Christ. And in view of this truth, then they were to put off in the power of the Holy Spirit the old man. This does not mean, friends, that they eliminate the flesh. We do not get rid of the old nature, but we're not to live in it. And I think any person today listening to me who's honest 
you recognize you've got an old nature. Now, we're not to live in it, but we also have a new nature. We are to live in it, and only by the power of the Holy Spirit, as that's the great message of the 7th and 8th of Romans. And Paul is dealing with that here. And that we are to walk in the righteousness and holiness of the truth. That shows that this is the imputed righteousness of Christ, and this is all done consistent with the holy character of God. Since we've been declared righteous, and we are in Christ, seated up there, down here, our walk should be commensurate with our position. Now, verse 25 through 27, and I'm reading now, as you've noted, my own translation in the book, Exploring Through Ephesians. Wherefore, having put away lying, speak ye truth, every one with his neighbor. For ye are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your indignation or your irritation. No longer give room to the devil. Now, Paul here returns to the prohibition. He began in verse 17, where the believers told to walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. Now, these injunctions continue through the remainder now of this epistle. These are the prohibitions. This is the power of negative thinking. Now, he's to speak the truth. And he's speaking the truth. Why? Because he's to put away lying. And when the old man was put off in the crucifixion of Christ... The lying tongue and the deceitful heart were put on the cross. That's the reason he had to die for us, is because you and I are lies. Remember, David said, I said in my haste, all men are liars. I remember hearing old Dr. W.I. Carroll years ago say, he said, you know, David said, all men are liars. But he said it in his haste. And Dr. Carroll says, you know, I've had a long time to think it over. And I still agree with David. Well, speaking the truth, you see, I think it resolved most of the problems in the average church. Long ago, I gave up the idea of trying to straighten out all of the lies that I'd hear in the church. I started out, I'd follow it down. And I found out, friends, that you spend all your time doing that. Now, since believers are members of one body, they should speak the truth. Here is the thing that Chrysostom said, and it's a ridiculous analogy, but it certainly illustrates the truth. I'm reading now from Chrysostom. Let not the eye lie to the foot, nor the foot to the eye. If there be a deep pit, and its mouth covered with reeds, shall present to the eye the appearance of solid ground. Will not the eye use the foot to ascertain whether it's hollow underneath or whether it is firm and resists? Will the foot tell a lie and not the truth as it is? And what again, if the eye were to spy a serpent or a wild beast, will it lie to the foot? I know, my friend, like the fellow that said he saw a ghost at night. Well, the eye told him he saw something. And he said to his feet, feet, don't get in my way. <laughs> I'm ready to go. And so he started out. Feet didn't let him down, you see, because they don't deceive one another. The eye won't deceive the foot, 
and in the church. There ought to be honesty and truth. And he says, be angry and sin not. Now, the believers commanded to be angry with certain conditions and with certain people. You know, this idea today that a Christian is one who's a blah, that he's sweet under all circumstances and conditions. My friend, will you hear me carefully? No believer can be neutral in the battle of truth. We should hate the lying and the gossiping tongue. And when we hear that in another Christian, we should hate that thing. Now, we should not hate or loathe a person with an innate hatred or, as Peter calls it, malice. He says that malice is something that should not be in the life of the believer. Laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, he says, and as newborn babes, we should desire the sincere milk of the word. Malice, as someone has said, is congealed anger. Can't give it up. A great many people have certain hang-ups. They hate certain people. They can't get over it, they say. I can't forgive. Well, we should forgive and forget if the person is willing to give up their line. And you find that the Word of God has a great deal to say about this. This idea that we're to be sort of a milk toast individual. You remember the Lord Jesus, when he went into that temple, and there was that man with the withered hand, and they had planted him there to see what he would do. Remember what Mark says in Mark 3, 5? And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he hated that thing. And he was angry with that thing. My friend, we're told that God is angry all day long with the wicked, but the minute they'll give it up, turn to him, he'll save them, of course. Now, that should be our attitude, by the way, the attitude of a believer. I heard of a custodian in a church. It was a church that had had a lot of problems, a lot of trouble, a lot of bitterness and hatred in the church, and a lot of little cliques, a lot of little groups. And they'd had one pastor after another. The custodian, though, had been there for years. And someone one day who visited the church, who knew about the church, said, how is it that you've been able to stay here so long under the circumstances Well, he says, you know, I just gets into neutral and lets them push me around. My friend, a great many people think that's being the Christian, to do that. No Christian can be neutral. We're in a great battle, as we're going to see in this epistle here. Now, verse 28 and 29. Let the stealer steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his own hands that which is good that he may have to give to him who hath need. Let no filthy speech come out of your mouth, but if any is good for the building up, as the need may be, that it may give grace unto the hearers. Now, man by his sinful nature is a thief, and he's a liar. And it's natural to be that way. May I say to you, when I was a boy, we always, during the year, a bunch of boys were a gang that I ran with, and they were mean. I'll tell you very frankly, they were mean. As I've often said, I was the only good boy in the crowd. But, you know, we used to go and steal watermelons during the watermelon season. And I'm of the opinion the owner might have given us one, but they tasted better if we swiped them. 
And then we'd steal peaches and apples out of orchard. I tell you, wasn't anything safe. And we'd steal eggs and take them down during the winter time to the old Buzzard Creek, and we would roast them and then hunt rabbits. And just naturally a thief, by the way. Then I was converted, and I haven't held up a bank or a market or anything like that. But I was riding here several years ago down a certain highway on a country road, and in fact, going to see a man. And he had a marvelous, wonderful watermelon patch. And you know my temptation. I actually stopped. I got out of the car. I thought, I think I'll go over and get me a watermelon. Then I thought, well, wait a minute. I'm going to see the man. He'll give me one. And there's no reason for me to do this. And I got back in the car and drove on. But you know, I almost went in his patch and took one without being asked. And I told him my experience. And he laughed and he said, you know, I might have shot you if you'd gone that watermelon patch. He said, I've had a lot in there stealing my watermelons and they're pretty valuable today. So it's in our hearts, friends. We just naturally that way. Now, Paul says that we're not to steal anymore, even when it may look like it's all right. And he's not to get rich for his own selfish ends, but he's to help others, you see, with whatever he has that's surplus. Today, there are many fine Christian ministries that lag and wilt for lack of fun. Why? Because a lot of God's children are not given as they should give. That's quite evident. Then he mentions filthy speech, and it means that which is rotten or putrid. An uncontrolled tongue in the mouth of a believer is an index to a corrupt life. Believers who use the shady, a questionable story, they reveal a heart of wickedness, because you know what's in the well of the heart will eventually come up through the bucket of the mouth. And the speech of the believer should be on the high plane of instructing and communicating encouragement to other believers. You can have fun and enjoy life. Humor's all right, but gracious, to deal with that which is dirty and filthy today. Now, he goes on here to deal with something that we want to deal with, and this is quite wonderful. He says, "...and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God in whom ye were sealed." until or for the day of redemption. Now, the day of redemption is that day that the Holy Spirit will present you to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's a person, the Holy Spirit's a person here that can be grieved, therefore. And what is it that grieves him? Well, the offenses which grieve the Holy Spirit, they've already been listed. That's what we've been talking about. When you lie as a Christian, that grieves the Holy Spirit. You have dirty thoughts. That grieves the Holy Spirit. And when a person is grieved, what happened? Well, there's no fellowship. He can't work in your life. But notice what he says. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, though. You're sealed till the day of redemption. Now, you can grieve the Holy Spirit, but you can't grieve him away because you've been sealed unto the day of redemption. How wonderful this is. From the moment that you're regenerated, the Holy Spirit seals you, as we've already seen in this, and he will present you to the Lord Jesus Christ someday. And in the meantime, you can grieve him. Now, what is the difference today, really, between Christians? 
the real difference between Christians is those who live with a grieved Holy Spirit and those who live with an ungrieved Holy Spirit. That's the difference. Now he says, in conclusion in this chapter, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. as that word malice again, congealed anger. But become ye kind to one another, kind-hearted, forgiving one another, as also God in Christ forgave you. Now, these two last verses, they're in sharp contrast one to the other. For instance, in verse 31, there is an additional listing of that which grieves the Holy Spirit. Now, these are the sins of the emotional nature. Bitterness. That's an irritable state of mind which produces harsh and hard opinions of others. Someone came to me and told me what they thought of a certain Christian, and there was a third Christian present. And after this man left, he said to me, if I were you, McGee, I wouldn't put too much stress upon what this individual has said. He said he's very bitter. Well, great many people speak in bitterness, and when they do, it hurts. And that grieves the Holy Spirit. Now, wrath and anger are outbursts of passion. Bishop Mole makes this distinction between them. He says, wrath denotes rather the acute passion and the other, that is anger, the chronic passion. And then clamor. That means a bold assertion of supposed rights and grievances. There are those in the church. You meet them guilty of this. It grieves the Holy Spirit. They said, you know, they don't pay any attention to me anymore. The pastor doesn't shake hands with me. Well, my friend, what right have you to say that he's got to run around and shake your little paw to keep you happy? Of course, a lot of us pastors had the job of burping the babies, and that was part of it, was shaking a lot of hands. They'd be bitter if you didn't do it, and they would be clamorous if you didn't do it. Now, evil speaking here is blasphemy. Yet it means all kinds of slander. And they're to be put away, that is, taken away. And it's an aorist imperative, if I may intrude a little grammar here. It means that there should be a decisive act if the Holy Spirit is not grieved. You're to put it away. You are to make a decision to put that away. Now, malice, as we've said, is congealed hatred here. But become, he says now... Do you note that here? He says, you're to put these away from you, but become kind one to another. And this denotes the radical change that should take place in the believer so there'll be no vacuum in his life. Kind to one another. That means Christian courtesy. Kind-hearted is more intense than the word kind. It means to be full of deep and mellow affection. Some believers, you know some like that. Wonderful friends, when they see you, they put their arm around you. Well, I went to college with, graduated college with him, then in seminary. I helped meetings for him for years. He's retired. When we saw each other in Florida, we just flung arms around each other. That's... Kind-hearted. I love him in the Lord. 
Now he says, forgiving one another. That's a reflexive form of a phrase, and it means to give and take in relation to the faults of one another. Forgive instead of magnify the faults of others. That's what we're to do. Now, all of this is done on a twofold basis. First, this conduct will not grieve the Holy Spirit. And in the second place, the basis of forgiveness is not legal, but gracious. It's not a command under law, but it's on the basis of the grace of God exhibited in our forgiveness because Christ died for us. And we're to forgive because we've been forgiven, not in order to get forgiveness. And that's quite a contrast. The Lord Jesus said, you know, you're to forgive, so you will be forgiven. <laughs> well, that's legal, and he was given that in the Sermon on the Mount. But here, it's on the basis of the fact of what he's done for us. This is quite wonderful. 